name is James Kidd. I'm sitting in a, in a slightly noisy room in Faber and Faber Publishers in, in London. There's taxis going past outside. Quite a lot of building workers always seems to happen in London. Uh, the biggest building site, I think, in the, in the world, probably. And I'm sitting with Laura Lippmann, who has flown specially from Baltimore just to meet me today. That's a slight <laughs> exaggeration, Laura. But, um, you've flown from... Baltimore via New York or via... No, Baltimore to London straight. We're very sophisticated. (laughs) But you're through jet lag. You're... Indeed. Way past um, needing to fall asleep. Uh, If you do need to fall asleep while I'm talking. (laughs) I don't think that would be an issue. Now, for those um, who don't know uh, Laura's work, um, she writes sort of in perhaps two two halves. There's a, a series of... Crime books starring uh, Tess Monaghan, who's a journalist turned detective. Correct. And then a series of slightly different but related standalone books, the latest of which uh, could have been called by the name of perhaps your, perhaps your two most famous books, Every Secret Thing and, and What the Dead Know. They could actually be titles for, for your new book called Wild Lake. That's true. Though either of those titles would have would worked. Work. Because I'm extraordinarily lazy, uh, I tend to ask the writer to describe the book, partly just to give a quick um, summary uh, so people can sort of calibrate themselves, but also perhaps where you're at with the book right now, because I know sometimes there's quite a long gap between finishing a book and a book coming out. It's it's only a two-month gap between when it came out in the US and when it came out here. But, you know, I finished it. I, I turned in the first draft last summer, to my editor and went through a pretty extensive revision with it. So we've sort of been done with each other since <laughs> October of last year, but I've been living it and talking about it, so I'm back in it again. Okay. And Has it changed for you? Does that process of talking about it, does, does that... It's interesting to me because I realize I somehow never quite perfect talking about it, you know, I think I should be sort of glib, rat-a-tat-tat, yeah, I've got this down, it's the script in my head. And it changes every day, the way I choose to talk about it. And there's like a number of entry points, even for me, to talk about the novel. And some days I want to talk about this, and some days I want to talk about that. And, you know, today I feel like saying, okay, Wild Lake is a novel about an ambitious, driven woman who has been elected the lead prosecutor of her county in suburban Maryland, a job her father held with great distinction about 30 years earlier. And in prosecuting her first murder case as the head of the office, she has caused to be thrust back into memories of her childhood, and in particular the story of how her brother inadvertently caused the death of a man in defending his friend against an attack that was an act of vengeance by two men who were angry that no one believed their sister's accusations of rape and it begins very deliberately about when my brother was 18 he broke his arm and for every reader who says gee that sounds a lot like to kill a mockingbird <laughs> that's very intentional <laughs> Well, I was going to... I said that for question number eight. Okay. Or maybe 8.3. Um, there, are, there are echoes. I mean, it's been hard to escape To Kill a Mockingbird over the last couple, yes. couple of years. Um, that was quite a surprise. I was writing this book when the news about Ghosts at a Watchman came out. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> why, why, why did that book 
cool to you? Why, why, why did you? Would, obviously, there's parallels with a a kind of really noble, crusading lawyer father. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a sort of there's a kind of Boo Radley figure in, in the oh, novel, yes. perhaps. But who's... As a matter of fact, his name is um, an anagram. <sighs> if you take if you take Radley's, it becomes Drysdale. No, there's so many little Easter eggs, and what no one has picked up on is the surname of the main character. Brent, you know, Brent is a kind of a bird. Finch to Brent, no one's gotten it. Um, but I just was determined to sort of have these, and of course when I sneaked the word shifferobe into the book, <laughs> that, was a, you know, that was a great delight. I came to it in such a roundabout way, which is I had begun to sort of rethink my own attitudes about rape, which I was surprised to find out I needed to rethink because, of course, I thought I was the most progressive person in the world. But when Dylan Farrow, the daughter of Mia Farrow and Woody Allen, a couple years ago wrote a letter that was published on the New York Times website asserting and affirming I am the victim of a sexual assault by my father this is not a story made up by my mother I deeply resent that people think that this is some strategic use of me I can speak for myself and this verse it it inspired me to go back and read every primary document in the case and I decided that I believed Dylan Farrow And I began to wonder why it's such a lingering question in our culture when we have accusations of sexual assault that we begin with this kind of equipoise that I think is um, disingenuous. It's a he said, she said story. Mm. That presumes equal power Mm. and equal harm, I think. And first of all, I don't think there's equal power between men and women, or actually perpetrator and victim, because men are the victims of sexual assault. And I don't think there is equal harm in the false accusation of rape and actual rape. And finally, quantifiably, they're nowhere close. In the United States, best estimates we have are of rape charges filed through proper criminal channels, two to eight percent max are false. That means at minimum 92% are fair. I mean, that isn't to say that people don't make wrong identifications, which was certainly something that came up in making a murderer in the Stephen Avery case. But look, if 92% are not false accusations, how do we get stuck in this he said, she said mindset? There's this lingering belief that false accusation is a really serious problem. I have a 22-year-old stepson. It would break my heart and I would be furious and indignant if he were ever accused of a crime he didn't commit. But it's not the primary problem. Mm. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to start believing people when they say they were sexually assaulted. And first I applied that to stories in the news. And sometimes I was wrong. University of Virginia came and went. I was like, I believe her. Oh, she lied. That's really a shame. I didn't feel I was wrong to have afforded belief. I, it's like, you know, I, I don't need to be the most cynical person in the room anymore. 
And then I just started thinking about, I was like, well, how do you think about To Kill a Mockingbird if you open your mind to the idea that she's telling the truth? Mm. And of course she's not. Of course she's lying. And we know why she's lying. And the whole point of the novel is that a black man in the 1930s in the United States could never get a fair trial of accused of raping a white woman, even a, a white woman who is as far down in the social case system as you can possibly be. But I just began to think about that. I began to think about, but what if the story takes place in a different time, in a very different place? What if it takes place somewhere where people feel they've done such a great job on race and gender issues? What happens then? And I was like, you know, I, I kind of thought about bringing it all the way to 2014, 15. Like, no, that's not right. And then I thought about the 1970s, which I remember very well, and the place where I went to high school, which mm. was this well-intentioned, would-be utopia where everyone was so sure they had all this stuff figured out. talk about um, uh, wildlife and Colombia. What you've just said has made me think of uh, the, the number of sexual scandals we've had in this country surrounding the BBC and particularly uh, the broadcaster Jimmy Savile um, and this idea of historical sex, sex um, accusations. And, and it's controversial here because I think enormous amounts of public money is being used now to, to track down um, uh, and, and prove cases that have often... Uh, are often about the same sort of age as, as in the novel. I was, I was just, just, just as a kind of like sideline before we, we, we move on to, to Colombia, that this is a novel really interested about what happens about over time to, to memory, about different standards of, yes. of judgment. Um, the times were different. I mean, in the United States, it was only, I think, I'll get the year wrong, so I don't want to say it, but I know it was in the 1980s before, of the 50 states, it was finally illegal to rape your wife and all of them, you know, that, that, there was, there were laws that made it impossible to be accused of raping your own spouse. Mm-hmm. It, it was, you know, it was like, well, you can't rape your own spouse. And, you know, one thing that really sparked this book was I have a friend, he's my age, so I'm 57. So we were in college about the same time, and he was in college and he had not yet come out as a gay man. And he joined a real rah-rah fraternity. And he said, as the Bill Cosby case was working its way through the media, he said, if we're going to talk about men having sex with women who are not capable of giving consent because of drugs or alcohol, half of the guys in my fraternity were rapists. And he said this in the context of trying to explain. We were, there's a group of us women who were kind of baffled by how vociferously some of our male friends would defend Bill Cosby and they'd kind of harrow, he's not been found guilty mm. in court. Whatever happened to guilty until proven innocent? I was like, well, that's a legal standard. And, you know, by the way, I'll respect whatever happens in court, but come on. It's like, you know, it's like at what point, how many women do you want to sign on? Mm. And why would you think that women would be motivated to jump on this bandwagon? They're treated horribly when they do. There's nothing in it for them. 
So we, that was sort of his explanation, which was, you know, there are a lot of guys. They're good guys. They're nice people. And they know that back in 1978, there was a girl passed out at a fraternity party and he had sex with her. And at that time, most people would have been like, oh, well, I would have been, I was in college. It would have been like, don't pass out at fraternity parties. You know, I remember being at a dinner, having dinner with some friends and we were talking, we were starting to talk about the, the sample case. And every woman described nothing as sort of serious as, as, as what he did, but described what would effectively amount to, to sexual assault. If there is a great thing about something like these cases, the Cosby case, is that you feel society is lurching a little bit. A little bit, although I become disheartened when I don't have an opinion again. Gretchen Carlson of the Fox News Network says she was sexually harassed by Roger Ailes. Unfortunately, the timing of this announcement seems very self-serving on her part. I don't want to have an opinion on it. I, you know, I want to, you know, the idea of, you know, a woman. To me, a woman working at Fox News has to be dealing with some kind of Stockholm syndrome to begin with. But what disheartens me, and it happened with Anita Hill too is other women from the same office come forward and said it didn't happen to me, therefore it didn't happen to her. I'm like, no, no, that cannot be the standard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's either you're saying, well, she's either a liar or she's somehow responsible because it didn't happen to me. And it didn't happen to me. It's sort of the worst mm-hmm. reaction. It's terrible. I mean, I don't think people realize the kind of victim blaming they're doing when they line up and say, I worked there, he didn't harass me, I, or I was at that party, I drank, I wasn't sexually assaulted, therefore, you know, in the book, I didn't read um, John Krakauer's Missoula until after I had finished Wild Lake, and I sort of have been obsessed with it ever since. It follows um, a series of rape cases in the university town of Missoula, Montana, over a couple of years. One of them quite famous and in the press, some others less so. And this book will fill you with so much dull rage. But it will also, you'll catch yourself up. You talk about the women going around the table and having a realization. When I wrote this book, I had cause to remember a moment 10 years ago. I know exactly when I did it when I told a rape joke and I and I would try to tell the joke again sort of as an object lesson when I was doing talks about wildlife in the states but I would tell it too well and people would still laugh at it so then I just stopped and then I tried to tell it in a really dull flat way and then I just finally stopped telling the joke um, it's, it's a joke about date rape and drunk women that I knew from reading a novel by a woman, a novel I quite like, mm. published in the 80s. So you think, so, you know, you read the date rape joke in the 80s, don't think twice about it. I told it as recently as 10 years ago. And now I look back and I think, wow, that is really unfortunate. But, you know, whether you're dealing with yourself or your ancestors, and you look back 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, and I think this is one of the, the ideas in Wild Lake. What are you going to do with that information? You know, this is, what are you going to do with that information is a question I have been living with 
ever since I sort of got my nerve up and went to my mother and said to her, she does all the genealogy, I said, okay, how many slaves did your ancestors own? Because I knew we were... I knew we had slaveholders in the family. I had four ancestors who fought in the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. Very problematic information to have. And sort of the family rumor legend was always, but we didn't have a lot of slaves. So it was like, you know. And then I had read Slaves in the Family, and and the author, Edward Ball, said, every slaveholding family has an essential lie they tell themselves. Mm. So I was like, okay, I better go confront the essential lie. We didn't have many. And, you know, it's almost senseless because slaves counted as three-fifths of a person. And I went to my mom, and she wrote it out on a piece of paper that I kept in my um, Filofax until my Filofax was stolen out of my car one day in Baltimore. My mother's family owned 42 slaves. That's not a small number. It's not a big rice plantation. It's a big number. It puts them in the 90th percentile of slaveholders. What am I going to do with that information? Yeah. You know, what do we do with this information that all of us in our lifetimes have... Like, like right now, every person who listens to this conversation, they have to know that five years ago, ten years ago, they said something that today is utterly unacceptable. Mm. It's sort of the easiest if you want to talk about the way languages change dealing with people who are transgender. Where, you know, five years ago, people talked about trannies mm. don't say that word any, you know that like you know and it, <laughs> I remember it was so awful in in Baltimore there were um, two trans prostitutes who stole a car from a trick and drove it onto the premises of the National Security Agency and they were shot one killed one critically injured and the initial news report said two transvestites and you're like no 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 you you got to catch up. Yeah. It's 2015 or whatever. You got to catch up. So, I mean, I'm just, all of these ideas were just obviously circling and circling and circling around in my head. And, and this is all the stuff I was kind of like trying to catch like lightning in a bottle when I wrote Wild Lake. <laughs>